Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and it is a miserable day out there. Lashings of rain and grey skies. Well, it's miserable here anyway, but maybe it's better where you are. But anyway, there is definitely a bit of a hope in the air. People getting to see each other, the shops open, museums and galleries open. I'm dying to get into Molly and the Little Museum of Dublin, both on Stephen's Green in Dublin, and just feeling a little bit more normal. Today, we're going to be talking to a first-time author about a book that's been getting rave reviews, and deservedly so. Boys Don't Cry is the story of two brothers, Finn and Joe, and it's been favourably compared with a really well-reviewed book called Shuggy Bawn. And it marks an assured and engaging debut from Fiona Scarlett, who is a primary school teacher in Kildare. And she has written that inspiration for the book emerged on a February evening just over three years ago when she was happily procrastinating on Twitter and she found a post by a paediatric palliative care doctor and he had listed all the things his young patients said they would miss the most when they died. And it was an incredibly powerful and moving tweet, she says. And after reading, she immediately opened up her laptop and wrote the first chapter of Boys Don't Cry, which has remained virtually unchanged from then until now. And that whole inspiration couldn't have come at a better time because she was in the final throes of an emlet in creative writing and hadn't decided what she was going to do for her final portfolio until that very moment. So it just shows you that inspiration can happen when you're procrastinating. Fiona is a major new talent and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Here she is, Fiona Scarlett. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, You've had us all in bits with your book, Boys Don't Cry, on the women's podcast. And uh, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster, but an incredible debut. So well done for that. But part of the inspiration for Boys Don't Cry came initially from a tweet. Tell us that story. Yeah, that's right. And thanks so much, Roshan, for having me on. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So the original spark of this story, it's about three years ago now. Um, I was there happily scrolling away through Twitter, as you do. And um, I came across a tweet by a paediatric palliative care doctor. And he had tweeted himself and the nurses he worked with had asked children in his care what they'd miss the most when they died. So, of course, it was an incredibly powerful and moving tweet And the first thing I did after reading it was I opened up the laptop and I wrote uh, the first chapter of Boys Don't Cry. So the chapter is virtually unchanged. It's practically identical to what it was uh, those three years ago. And then the story just sort of was there, fully formed nearly, you know. So I sat with it for a while and then started writing. But that's where the, the spark of it came from, that tweet. Yeah. I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs, if that's okay. Ice cream, any flavour, chocolate, banana, strawberry, or that one that holds all three striped together, sandwiched in a wafer. A screwball from Mr. Whippy with double sauce and sprinkles, begging Ma for a euro and legging it down the concrete steps, praying that I'd get there before he left, following the music box sounds of green sleeves or teddy bears picnic or Yankee doodle dandy. 
being pushed in a Tesco trolley around the back of the flats, Joe giving us all a shot but letting me stay the longest, pushing me faster, spinning and laughing while crashing into the overflowing double steel bins. So the story centres on those two brothers, Finn and Joe. Describe them for us, Fina. Well, uh, Finn is 12 and Joe is the older brother. He's 17. Um, So Finn is sort of typical young lad, very happy-go-lucky, you know, doesn't really see what's going on around him or it doesn't really affect him. And part of that is the innocence of childhood. Uh, Part of it is that he's grown up around... um, sort of violence and different aspects, but it's so normalised for him. So it's a bit like with children, it's when trauma happens or if they witness um, certain things or something happens, it's only really as an adult reflecting back um, that they understand the true realities of it really. So there's partly that as well. But a lot of it is his personality too. He's just that type of kid. Um, And then whereas Joe is the polar opposite really and He's hyper aware of his surroundings. He's hyper aware of what people think of him. He's um, very sort of bright, very ambitious. Um, and all he wants to do is just get on with his life, keep the head down, get through his scholarship, go and do his art and leave behind, you know, his background. And his biggest fear is ending up like his dad, which, of course, you know, He thinks that this is what you have to do to be able to just leave everything behind and it's not. So he constantly just has this armour up all the time and he doesn't really belong anywhere or he feels like he doesn't belong anywhere. And what's interesting about Joe the Odecart, he's this really talented artist. He's he's got this huge ability and a real, not just an artistic intelligence, but a a general intelligence as so many people who grew up in disadvantaged um, places do, but that doesn't often get recognised. But in Joe's case, he actually has a scholarship to this fee-paying school, which is something I don't think people know a lot about because I, I know um, particularly somebody close to me who who um, has a relationship with somebody who went through exactly the same thing. And there is this incredible opportunity given to people who are sort of higher achieving or above average intelligence, um, but from disadvantaged areas. And they get kind of thrown into this very privileged arena. It's such a contrast to their lives. And I, I think it was very interesting that you chose that for, for Joe because it, it's a very rich experience. Where did you get that inspiration from? Yeah, there's a lot of my my father and Joe, actually. So my dad, he grew up in inner city Dublin, just off Dorset Street. And when he was about 10 or 11, there, uh, his father, my granddad, signed him and his brother up. There was a man in Parnell Square um he used to give free music lessons to children in the area and he signed up anyway, um, my dad and his brother Kieran, and he saw something in them, that man Paddy Murray was his name and they ended up getting scholarships to the College of Music and then sure that music was everything to my, to my dad and then when he was in his mid-30s he went to college to train as a secondary school music teacher and went on to work in our community in a, a sort of disadvantaged school in our community and given the same opportunities to children in his care that he was given himself. So like he really believed in that one person being able to make a difference because it made such a difference to him and his life. So there's there's a lot of that tread running through it. So a bit of a tribute to Dar really as well in there. So they live in the flats. They live in a, one of the towers called the Jacks. And it's not Ballymun, but it's kind of an imagined Ballymun. Why did you set it there? 
Yeah, so my mom is from Ballymun and I know that area really well. And my father, um, he moved around quite a lot. So even though he calls home, like inner city, he lived in a lot of different places. And when he was about 17, uh, his family moved to Ballygall, which is literally right beside Ballymun. So I just know that area really well. Anytime we were visiting the grandparents, it was Ballymun and we'd pass the towers every time we were going. So it's that sort of imagined landscape even though it's sort of like it's a fictionalized terror block in the book I think the book is successful on so many levels Fina like an emotional one too but there's also for a debut novel which this is there's such a truth in it um, and authenticity that's kind of breathtaking because you write about this whole world with such sensitivity and you're portraying the pressures that many children in disadvantaged areas encounter but yet it's not in a stereotypical or patronizing way were you very careful about that because it seems to me you must have been yeah that is something that I was really really conscious of throughout and I think a job of a writer is to get yourself out of the characters as much as possible to allow the characters to speak for themselves. And like truth and honesty is really, really important to me and that it's not condescending, it's not patronising. And also to allow that space for the reader in there too. So it's like the reader connecting with the character. I didn't want my hand in there. Um, You know, this is a snapshot in time of this particular family dealing with this particular issue and you know I didn't want my voice in there um you know trying to put any point in there or agenda it was just trying to let the characters speak as much as possible for themselves uh very conscious of that yeah and another um sort of I think an achievement in it is that the book deals with a lot of very dark topics because you've got Finn and Joe's mum who's being physically abused and emotionally abused by her husband who ends up in prison and also you've got the whole drug situation, which many people in, in those areas um, have to deal with and just the general economic and social poverty. And yet there's still a lightness. I mean, Finn brings it through a lot, I think. And you talked about that innocence in him. Was it difficult to balance all that darkness and also then to have that lovely way that Finn looks at the world too, to to lighten everything up? Yeah, I think, you see, I wanted it to be very subtle. And I think part of that subtlety was removing myself from it as much as possible too. And Finn allowed me to deal with those darker topics in a very sort of subtle way. And I'm a teacher. I've worked in education now for about 17 years. So that sort of child voice I'm surrounded by all the time, you know, and I've two kids of my own. Um, and it's it's just a, a different way of looking at things, you know, and just the fact that I was able, like a lot of the violence towards man, things like that from dad is through Finn's eyes as well. So it did allow me um, to approach those topics, but in that more subtle way. And I think oh, it's a real Irish thing anyway, is with the darkness, there's always light. There's always a humour. It's it's what gets you through as well. So that's something that I wanted to sort of bring to it as well. I just want to bring your dad back into it too, because he died not so long ago. And obviously he was a huge influence on you in terms of his own story, but obviously you know, the way he was so interested in teaching and giving people opportunities that, you know, that he'd got and that he didn't get as a, as a young person growing up in inner city Dublin. Tell me about him. And obviously it's very sad that he hasn't seen this, you know, this your first book being out and the success and the, the amazing feedback you're getting. Yeah, he was a real character out and out. Like he, he literally is one of these people who knew the world and its mother, you know, and um, when he died, it was sort of, it's funny because he died right in between two level five lockdowns. So we were able to, we're very grateful that we were able to have 25 people at the funeral. 
you know, we were able to go to a hotel for a meal afterwards so we could, you know, chat with family and things like that. And a lot of people said, you know, oh, it's terrible. He didn't get the funeral he deserved. Like the st- it would have been absolutely thronged and the streets would have been lined. And to be honest, it was sort of, it, I'm grateful that we were able to have that small number because it made it just more personal and a bit, I suppose, I don't know if it is easy because at the end of the day, you know, is it ever going to be easy? But the most overwhelming thing was definitely the messages we got from past pupils after he died. Like just hundreds and hundreds of messages about the impact that he, he had made. That was really, really special because um, like unbelievable, the amount who said the only reason they stayed in school was because, and I mean, story upon story upon story. So it, you think that your words don't matter or what you do doesn't matter, but but it has a huge impact. So, yeah, I mean, you just sound like an incredible character. How did he die, Fina? Oh, he was. And he was he was hilarious. Like he was just really funny. He was like the last person standing at a party, you know, and everybody knew him. And not only that, he had time for everybody too. like he'd infinite patience, like unbelievable patience. And it was just a really, really rare. He got this really rare infection that started with a little cut and um, it turned into sepsis. The body went into septic shock then and he went into hospital and a month later then, unfortunately, he died. So it's um yeah it's been it's real mixed emotions because there's so much of him in the book so so much of what he stood for really I suppose is in the book so it's it's very bittersweet really the the whole thing <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah and I mean sorry that I didn't realize that that's how he died and that's so shocking and unexpected like you know it's not a long drawn out thing where you're expecting. And you don't you don't expect someone to get a cut and then that's the way it ends up. So I can imagine you're still reeling. Yeah, it was a it was a real shock, all right. And um like his health hadn't been the best recently, but um how he died was very shocking. Yeah. And I think it just made it quite difficult as well because when he first went into hospital, we were in level five and we weren't allowed to go in and visit. Um and then like the day the day before he died, the restrictions had eased a bit and my mom was actually able to get in to see him and be with him for the day. So it was nearly like he was just waiting so he could say a, a proper goodbye to everybody, you know. So it's um it's just one of those things and there's so many people now dealing with it and especially, you know, that aspect of it is very tough, I think, with with the lockdowns and things like that is is not having access, you know, people who have parents or siblings or, you know, partners or whatever in different type of care settings and just not being able to to visit has been very difficult, I think, you know. And what was his name, Fina? We should mention his name. Yeah, his name was Paddy Scarlett. What a great name. I know it is. It's a great name. All right. <laughs> it's almost like something out of a, a joke or a Paddy Scarlett works into the bar. And, yeah. and Fina Scarlett is such a great name for yeah. an author, I have to say, too. When I first saw your name on the cover of this book. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, sure, like Dad, he had the gift of the gab and he was a real storyteller, too. You know, he definitely was like an old Shanaki. He loved language. He used to make up limericks and stuff like that. So there's definitely a writer's soul in him there, too. So, <laughs> And Fina Scarlett's quite an unusual name. I haven't heard it before for you, actually. Yeah, yeah. So Scarlett's unusual enough in itself. We're sort of, we know everyone <laughs> in the, in the phone book as it used to be not anymore but um yeah it's an it's an unusual name in itself and then Fina on top of it so a double unusual one (laughs) and Fina when you were at school did everyone say Scarlet for you all the time yeah constantly (laughs) (laughs) that's the Twitter handle now Scarlet for you (laughs) I know you've embraced it I saw that yeah (laughs) 
you're getting in there first before everyone can be so unoriginal and say it. I remember talking to um, Dolly Alderton once and I, I started an email to her saying, hello, Dolly. And as soon as I sent it, I realized, <laughs> oh, my God, she must get that all the time. <laughs> it's so embarrassing when you do something like that. Um, you didn't start writing till your 30s. And I'm always really interested. And I think people listening are always very inspired by that, too, because a lot of the time we think, oh, you know, people have been doing it for, you know, since they were kids and stuff like that. Why did you first start writing? Yeah, do you know, it's really strange. I actually don't know when I decided I wanted to be a writer. Like, I always loved reading, like lived in the local library. And, you know, my mom's a huge reader as well. So I just read all the time. And so I suppose that was my first love. And I did love English in school. But like that, I love the plays. I love character. I love dialogue. Uh, you know, that's what I was really drawn to. And I don't remember any of the creative writing or written element in the Leaving Cert at all. I remember the plays and I remember, you know, the novel and I remember the poetry, but I don't remember any of the sort of creative writing element of it. And music is what, um, like I did music in my undergraduate degree. So music is always, was always there. And I was always drawn, funnily enough, to composition within music as well. So I suppose that creative side was was there somewhere. And... Um, and then it was about, I suppose it was about 35 and I was at a wedding with my husband and we were away for the weekend and it was the second day and it was just the two of us and we're in the local pub and I must have been thinking about it for a while because I remember having to pluck up the courage to tell him that I wanted to be a writer, that I wanted to write and it was really sort of daunting admitting that this is something that you wanted to do. And he was like, yeah, that's brilliant, just go, just go and do it. So I started writing and when I started writing it was... um sort of humorous children's middle grade because like that I was teaching uh, in primary school so I was surrounded by children all the time like my own children so it was just I suppose a natural progression that I went into that so I did that for a couple of years and then I said no this is something that I really 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 want to do so I'm going to look into doing a master's in creative writing and just to say you do not have to have a master's in creative writing if you want to get published like 100%. But for me, I had no background in English. I sort of didn't really have any confidence in my writing. I was more a test to myself to say, listen, try it out and see if you have what it takes. If you, do, if you don't, if they turned around and told me this, you know, you have no chance of making it as a writer, you know, I would have been, that's grand, fair enough, but I'm giving it my absolutely everything because I'll regret it if I don't. And when I started looking around for master's here, I was looking for part-time Masters because I wasn't able to give up work at the time with bills and all the rest of it. And um, I couldn't find any, all the part-time masters here at the time when I was looking, the lectures were still, even though it was part-time, the lectures were on in the morning. So you couldn't work and do it at the same time. So I have a sister in Glasgow and she said, listen, I think the University of Glasgow has a distance learning option. Why don't you look it up? So I did and I applied and it was the best thing I ever did because it completely encouraged you to experiment with different forms, different genres. We did poetry, short stories, you know, nonfiction. We did everything. And it was during that then that I wrote the first chapter of Boys Don't Cry. And I had a tutor. She was absolutely brilliant, real no nonsense. And she was there. You have to stop treating this like a hobby and just write like this is what you're supposed to be writing. Just go and do it. Um, so I had to have the first 20,000 words of the book as a porf- as my end of year portfolio so that's how it all started, you know, but it's um for anyone out there, it's just you just keep chipping away. If you want to write, just go and start. It doesn't matter about age or any of these things. And it can be really intimidating and you do have to fight for your space to write because it's um like I'm not somebody who writes every day because I can't, you know, you've life and work and other things going on. But 
if you if it's what you really want to do, even a little bit here and there, when you can fit it in, when you can squeeze it in, you know, that's it. Tell me what happened then, because you had your 20,000 words and they're pretty much what's the book, you know, the first 20,000 words of the book, I suppose, uh, as it stands now. But you got a good uh, break. There's a, there's a meet the agent competition that you entered. Yeah, so there's this thing. It all started to sort of fall into place for me in 2019. So I just finished the Emlet and I had the 20,000 there and I was sort of working away in myself um, you know, getting the book ready. And I saw it's a date with an agent through it's writing.ie with Vanessa Fox Lachlan and um, the International Literature Fest- Festival. So I had the opening more or less really well polished at that stage. So I said, look, I've nothing to lose. I'm just going to go for it. So I sent it in and it got accepted and went along. Not only did I have, um, you know, I had a whole um, day of events. So there was um, editors there. There was a panel of agents there. uh, There were writers there. Like uh, every single different element of the industry was there giving a talk and then got a workshop with one of the agents and sort of talking about the work. So that sort of gave me the bug as well. And it gave me, I suppose, the confidence to keep going. And then later on that year, I got... um, it was a Dennis O'Driscoll bursary through Kildare County Council. And then later on, I got an arts um, bursary through the National Arts Council. And I got my agent then in December of 2019. So it was just, it sort of all started to fall into place all around the same time. And again, it's just to keep at it and to put that out there because like I got a load of rejections from agents um, and a, the most common rejection that I got was we absolutely love this and we think the writing is great but we don't know where this fits on the shelf or you know we don't know how we're going to sell this and that's what I heard over and over again and um, so it, there's you can hear about the big auctions and you can hear about the big preempts and you can hear about you know the eight agents who all put in offers for your book but um the reality is that doesn't happen for the majority of people. And, you know, here I am. I had one, one publisher offered on the book. And again, I got fabulous feedback from um, other publishers. But one offer, and now it's my, my dream publisher and my absolute dream agent. I've been phenomenally lucky and incredibly grateful. I could not think of a better match for me or the book. But just to put it out there that, you know, if you don't get that big, huge auction or you don't get that big preempt, it doesn't, you know, it, it's nothing to do with you or your writing or the book or the quality or any of these type of things. And, you know, there's a lot of writers out there, like the majority who don't, who don't get those things and it still works out grand, you know. And Fina, your mum, who sounds also like a bit of a character, when when you were getting those replies that said, we don't know where, we can't see it on the <laughs> shelf. She said something very good, I think. Yeah, she goes, oh, well, they won't see it on the shelf because it'll be in the window. <laughs> <laughs> with the belief of only a mummy there yeah, I love it yeah. and in fact it is in windows now so she was completely yeah. right she must have a crystal ball somewhere it's a really emotional read Fina uh it's kind of and also what I find astonishing about this book is for the fact that it's a your first book the voice is so strong and clear and assured was it did it sort of flow out of you or, I mean, I don't want to kind of diminish the work because clearly you honed it and you polished it and you worked very hard on it, but did it feel like a book that was in you waiting to come out? 
Oh, yeah, 100% Roisin, because even like when I was looking at that tweet, like that sparked it. But literally when I went to write it, it was it was nearly there fully formed. Um, like Finn in particular, he, he just nearly wrote himself. And I think a lot of people think his storyline was harder to write because of obviously what, what happens. But for me, because his story was so clear, like it, it just wrote itself. And it was always when I was when I first went to write it, I thought it was going to be about Annie, the ma and Finn. That's who I was going to do it around. But when I actually sat down to write it, Joe was just there. And the story, like the shape of the story has always been the same, even from the first draft. Um, so like even through the editing process and everything, yes, I was honing and trying to get it as tight as possible and as real as possible and all of that. But the actual story shape itself is is more or less exactly the same um it's it's really strange the way that it happened so I think it has been percolating there for a long time and even when I was writing um my children's stuff it was still really voicey sort of similar style of writing um so I think that style was always there anyway and of course like all the books that I'm drawn to like I love books written in vernacular like the likes of uh, of course Roddy Doyle or Donal Ryan Kevin Barry um, you know Marion Keyes Maeve Binchy like when I was a teenager I literally devoured every single thing that Maeve Binchy wrote and it's because it's like somebody is sitting down beside you telling you a story and for me I think it's with the music background as well is that how a story sounds is really important it's like it's storytelling and I wanted to get that on the page as well, that as somebody's reading it, it sounds as if somebody's telling you the story. So that that's another thing I wanted to try and get out. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Tell me about the music. Are you musical yourself then? Yeah, I am. I did music in college. I'm, my instrument is piano. So I play the piano. And uh, of course, like growing up in a musical family, like my mom is a pianist herself. And my father, it was the trumpet that Paddy Murray gave him all those years ago. Um, and he was in bands. So we always had music um, in the house. And it's just, I've always had a love of music anyway. And I think, you know, people have asked me that before. If you weren't from a musical background, do you think it's still, you know, and what type of question is that? But still, no, it's just something that's, I've just such a love for it, you know, that I can't imagine having a life without it, you know, that sort of way as well. So, yeah. I'm really interested to know, Fina, what you think about how um, Dublin is portrayed in, say, the media or Dubliners, particularly working class Dubliners who are from areas where there are societal problems that people are born into. And so they have parents in prison or they have difficulties that like most people in sort of leafy uh, part, leafier parts of Dublin don't ever experience. Um, do you, does it make you angry sometimes the kind of way people like Finn and Joe are dismissed or not regarded or kind of the stereotypes that abound around people like Finn and Joe? Yeah, I think the stereotypes in particular, like I'm from like Mulhudden and Dublin 15 and when I was about 11 we moved to Hartstown and Dublin 15, literally just down the road. And um, like I'd still get, well, you know, you don't sound like you're from Mulhudden or you don't sound like you're from Hartstown and, you know, comments made on the area or whatever it is and I think there's there's a sort of danger there as well in like an area that is designated disadvantaged. Just because an area is designated disadvantaged doesn't mean that everybody in that area is living in disadvantage. It's just it's um, I find in Dublin in particular, and I can only really speak for Dublin, is that there's still a very prevalent postcode discrimination um, you know, with with certain areas that's, you know, whether it's Ballymone or Clondalk and Tala, you know, parts of Blanche where I'm from. And 
It's and I think Dublin 15 as an area is really interesting where I grew up because like it's just such a vast area of lots of different type of backgrounds all together, you know, and it's um like when the Westies were operating out of Cardiff at the time as well, like drugs in that community was so prevalent. And again, it's looking back that you you could see it in the community, but it was just so normalised and where my, my father worked in uh, Riversdale Community College in Cardiff and, you know, it was it, it, that gang or culture was seen as an alternative for a lot of young males living in the area at the time and but not but not all you see this it's it's this whole it's it's that prejudice it's the preconceptions that are made based on an accent or based on the postcode or any of those type of things and I think for me Jasmine in the book is sort of an example of like she she's talking about she wants to be a specialist when she grows up and you know one of the friends is slagging going you don't even know what it is like and she's there, but my dad says I can be anything that I want to be. Like she has a family support unit there. You know, she has this belief in herself that has been given to her, even though she's still living in the same area as the boys, you know, or even Sabine. You know, she's there with her granny and has this huge love and support there. And it, it's just, I think I just wanted a more nuanced look at I suppose, class, really. Like, what is class? It's another way of boxing people into certain stereotypes or preconceptions, really, you know? Oh, yeah. And thanks for speaking so eloquently about that. Um, you mentioned Roddy Doyle there. Has he read the book, do you know? I don't think he's read it. And I'm absolutely dying for him to, to read. So, Roddy, if you're listening, pick it up. I know. I'd love to hear his, um, I'd love to hear his opinion on it, yeah, because I really admire Roddy Doyle and I absolutely love his writing. I've always loved his writing. And, um, I did teach and practice out in Greendale, actually, with a colleague of his, Marita Cairns, when he used to work out there. Um, So it's not there anymore, the school. But it's, um, you know, it's, yeah, I I would love to hear what he thought about the book because he's a massive, I'm a massive fan of his, I should say. (laughs) Bina, tell me any of the exciting things that have happened to you about the book, because um, Faber is an incredible publisher. You've got, who's your agent? Uh, Sophie Lambert is my agent at C&W in London. So, I mean, you've got a London agent, you've got a really posh publisher, it has to be said. And, you know, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, well, this could be a film. Is there any talk of that? Do you know? No, there's not, Roshan, not yet anyway. And like so many people have said that to me, that it's really, really visual. And again, I suppose it's because I was always drawn, like because I'm so drawn to that dialogue and character, I think that just naturally makes it a bit more visual. So again, if there's anyone Hollywood producer out there (laughs) who wants to snap up the film rights, Give us a ring. Um, not yet. So but Robbie and, you know, big t- Steven Spielberg, <laughs> if you're listening. The cover is amazing. I live in North Strand, so just down the road from Dolly Mount, not too far. And it's really gorgeous, evocative cover. And you must be really pleased with that depiction of Dublin. Yeah, the cover um, is stunning. And it's so strange because like when you don't get any input into the cover. And I actually didn't want any input into the cover because I wanted to see what somebody else came up with. And I started becoming obsessed when I heard that my cover was coming out soon. I started to get obsessed with cover design. I was researching all into it. I was going to online lectures. I mean, I was getting completely obsessed. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a book cover designer now, but sure, I can't do art around them. But it's um, it's incredible the work that goes into it. And 
the it's Anna Morrison is the name of the designer and she's just phenomenal. And she sent me this really lovely message when the cover came out and just said that generally what happens is the editor will send a brief to the cover designer and they'll read the first couple of chapters. But she said she sat down and she had to read the whole thing. And it was a complete shock because I didn't know, I actually didn't know what was going to be on the cover. I didn't know what to really expect. And the fact that she picked out, like it's so iconically Dublin, but it's not stereotypical Dublin either. And the colours even in it, which I didn't realise until I was at the proof stage. So when they send you a sort of mock-up of the book and you have to read through it and make sure there's no spelling mistakes. And so it's near the very end of the process. And I was still like, God, I wonder where she, like I knew like with the dolly mount and stuff, I was like, oh God, like I wonder where she got like the idea from. And it's in the middle and when Finn's in a hospital room and there's a mural painted on the wall and there are the colours of the mural on the wall that I had said, but I couldn't remember it. And when I was reading, I was like, oh my God, that's where she got the cover from. So it's just, it's such a strange experience. And I've spoken about this before as well. It's like listening to the audio as well. It's um, it's really, really humbling because you know, there's people are getting work because of the book that you wrote. So that designer was hired to create a cover for something that I made up as well as the actor who did the audio. So it's just like the amount of people that goes into one book. It's just phenomenal. It really is. All I can, the only word I can use to describe it is humbling because it's and everybody just so supportive. You know, it's it's unbelievable. It really is eye opening experience. Fiona, you're a teacher in Kildare, even yeah. though you're a true dog yeah. <laughs> I can hear it and I can read it in this book. So is this now, it's been had such success and people are raving about it. Does that mean you're going to quit your teaching job and be a writer full time? Well, do you know, I was, um, I just found out yesterday or was it the day before that I've been awarded an Arts Council grant for this year. So I'm absolutely delighted. So I asked for the full amount this year with the view that I'd be able to take a career break next year. So it was all hinging on that. Because, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll be able to take a year out next year and write full time. So I'm absolutely delighted. Yeah, it's so thank you to the Arts Council. I'm incredibly grateful. Oh, well, I, I'm so pleased to hear that. What are you working on at the moment, Fiona? Or, or are you working on something now? Yeah, so I have a really, really rough draft of book two done. So when this book went on submission, so it went on submission um, around uh, sort of the end of February last year, just before the lockdown. So when the lockdown happened, um, my agent, we were sort of talking about it and we said, maybe we'll pull it and wait till September when we thought everything was going to be finished. And um, because things had just changed so much and people working from home and their kids at home and all sorts of things. And then, of course, we got the call. So my way of getting through the submission thing, because I had done everything that I could with this book, I knew that if this book didn't sell, there was nothing else that I could do to it to make it sell. So one thing that helped me get through the whole submission thing to publishers was start on the next book. So I did. Um, so I have yeah, a very rough draft of that done and I'm sort of going to polish it up now over the next couple of weeks and hopefully send it to the agent and fingers crossed it, it'll sell. <laughs> and Fiona, can I ask what it's about? Yeah, so it centres around... Um, it's set where I'm from. It's sort of a miss. Again, it's like a fictionalised thing, but it's a mismatch of um, Hearthstone and Mountview from where I'm from. And it's based around um, two childhood friends who sort of become more than that. And when they're about 19, they decide they're going to um, emigrate to New York and they're about to go and 
she her mother then is diagnosed with dementia so she doesn't go but she doesn't want him to know why she's not going so just tells him she doesn't want to go anymore and he goes and she loses all contact with him because she just doesn't want to deal with it and it's set in the present day and it's in a hairdresser so she sort of um, owns the hairdresser her and the mother and they live in the flat up on top of the hairdressers and it's sort of he's he's back now it's 20 years later and he's back and she's deciding is she going to go over to see him or not so it's based on the well set really the setting is based on our local hairdresser at the time and it's really small little hairdresser and everyone's coming in and you're getting all the gossip and you know the local dog from the green is running in so I know from where we are it's like it has the pub and the hairdresser and the shop and then the green and the the housing estate so it's, I, you know, it's a good way of getting sort of that claustrophobic setting, um, but lots of different types of characters coming in and out. So that's, that's the new one. <laughs> and are you happy? Are you as happy with it as you were with Boys Don't Cry? Yeah. And again, the story just sort of was there. And I think like for me, I can't start writing until I know what the story is in my head. So I don't write anything down. Like, so I don't like plot it. I know people do lots of t- planning and all different types of things. So I just sit with it in my head for a bit. But again, this one sort of came, the story of it came fully formed. And then it also originally when I when I was going to start writing it, I thought I was going to do it between the perspective of the two main characters, um, you know, uh, Shannon and Dean. And then when I start writing it, it was the main, it was her, it's all her story. And then it's sort of like interwoven between flashbacks of their childhood, I suppose, as well, laced in through it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Fina, before you go, just want to ask what you're reading yourself or what books from more recent Irish literature or, or books that you are enjoying. You mentioned uh, Maeve Binchy and Marion Keyes there. I presume you're still a Marion Keyes fan. Is yeah. there any other uh, authors that you're reading at the moment that are inspiring you? Oh, well, Joan O'Ryan is my absolute inspiration. Like, I absolutely adore um, every single thing that he writes. And I remember reading when I picked up Strain or Spinning Heart. Uh, it was like a light bulb moment. It was that, um, you know, the beauty in the language of the everyday and everyday people. So like he's a huge inspiration of mine. Um, I adore Maggie O'Farrell as well. Um, you know, I've recently read How Much These Hills Are Gold. That is absolutely fabulous. Anyone out there, it's a stunning, stunning book. I have uh, Snowflake by Louise Nealon has just arrived today. I got it in the post today and Paneka from Ronan Hessian has arrived today as well. So I'm really looking forward to reading those. Um, Kololo Hill by Nima Shah is one that I adored recently as well. That's out the last couple of months. Um, and there's a thriller When They Find Her by Leah Middleton as well, a sort of psychological thriller, um, which I absolutely adored recently. But um, yeah, any any writer really writing in that, um, like as I said, Donal, Ryan, Kevin Barry, any of that sort of um, writing about everyday things in everyday language, um, they're the books that I absolutely adore. Brilliant. Well, we've loved Boys Don't Cry on the Women's Podcast. We recommend it very highly and uh, so lovely to talk to you and hear about your inspirations and especially about your father who Paddy Scarlett does sound like a bit of a legend and um, he's not here to see all of this, but he's in the book, as you say, he's on the pages. His spirit lives on through it. Oh, Roisin, that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, that's really lovely. That's a lovely thing to say. So thank you. That was Fina Scarlett there in the book, which I can highly recommend is called Boys Don't Cry. Make sure you have a few tissues in your pocket. 
podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.